one of my favorite things about sitting on the front row is hearing Nelson sing and then sing. That's awesome. Every week I look forward to it. Ah, well, if you're a guest with us, this is a great week to be here. We're kicking off a new series uh, that we're calling Recovering Redemption. I've been looking forward to this uh, series all summer long, just kind of waiting for school to get back in session. And uh, I don't know exactly how long it's going to last. We'll see uh, how long it goes for. Uh, but basically what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at the Ark of the Bible. Uh, the Ark of the Bible. It's really 66 books, yes, but it all has one theme, one, one strand uh, of thought uh, kind of woven through throughout the entire book, the entire Bible. It, it's basically this. There's paradise, paradise lost. In the first three chapters of the entire book. And then the rest of the Bible, God is recovering redemption. He's bringing back to himself that which was lost. And so, we're going to be looking at that over the next few weeks. And I am really, really excited about it. Really, if you you summed up the entire Bible in one word, it's this. It's the gospel. Now, we use that word a lot here. And so, I want to make sure that we... uh, are all talking about the exact same thing. And so I want to to explain what the gospel is, define it, and then kind of explain it. It it comes from the the word euangelion, which means good news. Euangelion, the gospel, good news. And in our culture, in in our setting, the gospel, the word gospel is really a a religious word. It's a word that we use in church. It's not something that's used in in secular culture outside of the church. It's It's a religious term. But when they penned the Bible, Galeon or gospel, good news, was really a, a, a military term. Now, some of you have heard me explain this before, but I wanna, just want to make sure we're all on the same page as we're going forward. Galeon was a military term. It meant good news. Back in the Bible times, there would be a city, and a city would have four walls around it for protection. And on that wall, they would send up watchmen on each corner of the wall. And their job was pretty simple. To look off into the distance and make sure that the city was not going to have a surprise invasion. They were to look off onto the horizon. And if they saw an army coming, an invading army coming towards their city, they would turn around and they would shout to the army that they were about to be invaded. So they would come to the center of the square, the the town square there. They would gather the army together. They would get their, their weapons And then they would head outside of the city walls to pursue and engage the invading army. They didn't want to engage the army inside their city, inside the walls of their city. That meant sure defeat. So they would head out outside the city walls to engage an invading army. Well, as you can imagine, as you know, they didn't have technology like we do today. So there was no... Embedded reporters, there was no texting, no Twitter, nothing like that going on when the battle was taking place. After So, after the battle was over, if the defending army, the army who was being invaded, won, they would send back a messenger. And he would bring back the Ungalion, the good news. If the defending city lost, the pursuing army would go ahead and continue forward and, and take over the city. And they would become captors of that army and of that particular ruler. That's the gospel, the good news. 
Now, for the gospel, for good news to take place, it has to invade bad spaces. For news to be good, it must invade bad spaces. What I mean by that is this. When the army was coming and pursuing the city, obviously that's bad news. When your husband and your sons have to gather together and they have to head out to battle, that is bad news. That's a bad day. While the battle is taking place and you have no clue what's going on, you don't know what the outcome is. There's, there's anxiousness. There's, there's worry. There's bad news. And that, it's that way until the messenger comes back and invades the bad space, invades the bad news with the Uengelion, the good news. So for news to be good, it must invade bad spaces. Let me bring it a little bit closer to home. You find out that there is a growth inside of you. And so you head to the doctor and he says, we got to take a biopsy. You head off a couple days later and have your biopsy. They, they take it, they send it off to the lab, and you wait a few more days. A few days later, you head off to the oncologist's office. And he always ushers you in, he welcomes you into his office, and you're anxious, and there's a lot of bad news going on. You don't know what to expect, you know, it's not good. He sits you down and he says, I just want to let you know that it's benign. You don't have cancer. That news is good news because it invaded a bad space, a bad place. The news was good because prior to that, the news was bad. And it made it all the more glorious when you heard it. Well, this morning, and throughout this series, we're going to be doing the exact same thing. I think I'm reading. We're going to be doing the exact same thing. We're going to be looking at the good news, and then the bad news, and then redeeming that back, God redeeming us back to Himself over the coming weeks. But this is bad news morning, alright? If you came in here this morning and you were thinking, I've had a bad week, I just want... To leave here feeling good about myself. You picked the wrong weekend, alright? Come back next weekend, we'll do that. This is Bad News Weekend, alright? Just give me a heads up, gonna lay the groundwork here. Bad News Weekend. But, here's my prayer, and here's my hope, and here's my expectation. In the coming weeks, because of what we've looked at today, the good news is gonna look all the more glorious. It's gonna offer so much more hope. And it's gonna give that much more peace. The good news is good because we've looked at the bad news. The good news is glorious because we've looked at the desperate situation bad news has brought us. And so this morning, that's what we're going to do. If you have your Bible, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 1 through chapter 3. Obviously, we're not going to read all that. We'd be here all day. But we're mainly going to camp out in chapter 3. So if you have your Bible, turn to chapter 3, and I'm going to kind of lay some work and some groundwork that leads us up to that, to that point. Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 2, the God of creation, the the triune God, is in what C.S. Lewis calls a dance. The God, God the Father, is submitting and loving to the will of God the Son, perfectly, in perfect harmony. God the Son is doing the exact same thing to God the Holy Spirit, submitting and loving the 
God the Holy Spirit in perfect communion, in perfect peace, in perfect harmony. And then God the Holy Spirit is doing the same thing to God the Father. They've been submitting and they've been uh, loving to the will of the other in perfect harmony and in perfect peace, in perfect rhythm for all of eternity. And the overflow of that relationship, the overflow of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in this perfect dance, as C.S. Lewis calls it, the overflow of that spills onto the canvas of creation. And everything that is, is created as a result. Uh, in evangelical circles, a lot of times, we'll, we'll learn that, or, or we'll teach and then learn that, God created this world because He needed a relationship with you. Now, I will grant to you, He desires one. He has gone to great lengths to win us back to Himself so we can have a relationship with Him. But, on the authority of Scripture, He did not create this world. He did not create you and did not create me because He needed us for anything. Definitely not a relationship. He desires it. He wants it. He has accommodated it by going to the cross. We're going to talk about that in the future. But He does not need it. If that was the case, Genesis 1-1 would read very different. It would read like this. In the beginning, I was bored. And I was just looking for somebody to hang out with. And I couldn't do any better than you, so I put you here. (laughs) Obviously, that's not the case. The God of the universe, the God of all creation, lived in perfect harmony and perfect relationship with the Godhead and inside the Godhead. And please don't ask me to explain it beyond that. I do not understand. My mind is too simple. Yet I still know it's true. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, in perfect harmony, submitting and loving each other, putting them before themselves. And the outflow of that spilled onto the canvas of creation. And everything that was, was created. If you continue to read in in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, if you read it in the Hebrew, it's, it's really written in perfect rhythm. And in perfect harmony. It, it, it's like a song. It's like a, a, a poem. I almost said, it's almost like Moses was the first rapper. Because the, 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 the rhythm that it was written, written in is kind of like that. And it goes something like this. God created and it was good. God created and it was good. And God created and it was good. In perfect rhythm. Perfect harmony and perfect peace. Everything was created. And then he takes a man and he takes a woman and he creates them and he places them in the garden. And he says, I want you to look out at all that I created in perfect rhythm and in perfect harmony, perfect love, perfect peace. I want you to look at all of that. And Adam and Eve stand up probably on a hill somewhere and they look over the vastness and the, the lushness of the garden of Eden. And he says, all of it is yours. You have dominion over it. And there's just one rule. I've only got one rule for you, Adam and Eve. Right there in the center of the garden, there's a tree. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I got one rule that has to do with that. 
I mean, it's not even a, it's not even an ambiguous rule. It's not like show respect. Like there's a thousand ways to show respect and not show respect. That's a difficult rule to follow. God doesn't even do that. He gives them one simple rule, and it's found in Genesis chapter two, and it has to do with the garden. I mean, it has to do with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I'm gonna see if this is fixed, so I can turn around and continue to talk. Here it is. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, and going through 17, this is the one rule that God gave him. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden. There had to be thousands, maybe even millions of trees. They're all his. But you can, you can eat every one of them except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. I mean, they had it good, right? They were living in perfect harmony, no shame, no guilt, very little pain. We're going to see here in a few minutes. Things were going good for these guys. And they had one simple rule. Don't touch the tree in the middle of the garden. Don't touch it. And don't eat from it. If you have a list of a thousand, you know, not a thousand, but five, you know, most difficult questions from the Bible, there's going to be different questions, but almost every time you have a list of that, you read kind of one of the most difficult questions in the Bible, almost every time you're going to find this question, why did God have to put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in there? I mean, why, why did he have to put it in there? After all, there is really no explanation, right? He doesn't say, don't eat from it, and here's why. Well, I want to give you my opinion. This is conjecture. This is what I think. You're, you have your own opinion. In fact, if you're in a homeroom, you're going to get to share that opinion tonight. This morning, I get to share mine. Here's what I think. Here's the reason why I think God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden. I live with a six-year-old boy who asks why about everything. All right? I mean... I ask him to do something, he wants to know why. <clears throat> About everything. It's almost as if, and he's never articulated this, or we'll be headed to the room with a belt, but he's never articulated it this way. <laughs> but it's almost like he's, he's, he's saying this. Uh, if you could just explain it, and, and I think it's reasonable, then, then I'll agree with you. I, I understand you want me to do that, but if you'll just tell me why, and then I'll be, I'll decide if that's a reasonable enough answer, and then at that point I'll agree to obey, to listen, and to do what you've asked me to do. If he ever said that, here would be kind of my response. I don't have to. Because I'm the dad, and you're the son. I don't have to explain everything to you. In fact, if I explain it to you, you're not obeying me at all. You're just agreeing with me. I am 33. You are 6. I know a little bit more than you, at least for a couple more years. <laughs> and so when I ask you to do something, you do it. If you take that, even to the, a further degree, I think that's exactly why God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the, in the garden. He doesn't have to explain it. He says, I am God, and you are not. He says, I want you to obey because you love me. I want you to obey because you know that I want what's best for you. I want you to obey because I created it, and you did not. That's why I believe 
God put the tree there in the first place. I mean, he doesn't explain himself, and he doesn't have to. Because he's the creator, we're the creator. He is God, and we are not. Just like I'm the dad, I know a little bit more than him. I have a little bit more experience than him. And my son is not. That's why I think God put the tree in the garden of Eden. And God tells them, I don't want you to eat from it. And they couldn't do it. They didn't do it. In fact, if you read just a little bit further down, you see that this whole thing known as creation begins to unravel. And it unravels in a very, very big and bad way. Adam and Eve, and you know the story. Adam and Eve are walking in the garden one particular day. We don't really know how long they've been there. They may have been there for thousands of years. It may have been a few days. We don't really know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But they're walking in the garden, and the serpent comes up to Eve. And, and we're not really sure what Adam is doing. We do know he's kind of a wet noodle of a husband at this point, because he never steps in to stop anything. So the serpent comes up and he says, Hey, Eve, I know... You kind of got a wet noodle for a husband there, so I'm just going to come and I'm going to talk to you. Did God really tell you that you couldn't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Did he really say that? And he responded, yep, that's exactly what he said. He said, we're allowed to have fruit, we're allowed to eat from anything in the entire garden. That's just the one tree that he's told us we can't touch and we can't eat from or we're going to die. And the serpent says, it's not true. I mean, you're, you're really not going to die. In, in fact, the reason God told you not to eat from that tree, the reason He told you is because He knows if you eat from that tree, you'll be as smart as Him. You'll be a better God than He is. He knows that. That's why He told you not to eat from it. He knows that you'll be better at what He does than, what, than, than He is. And so I don't want you to eat from it. God told you. Now, before you're too hard on Adam and Eve, before I'm too hard on Adam and Eve, we believe that same life sometimes, don't we? We believe that we would make a better God if we know a little bit more about our life than He does. We'd make a better sovereign than Him. And then we do things that we're called, told not to do for our own protection. Because we think we know better. And so... Eve believes the serpent. She goes up, and we don't know what Adam, Adam's doing again. He's probably looking at the clouds or something. Uh, and she picks up a fruit, apple, takes a bite, hands it to Adam, who takes a bite as well. And at that point, all-out war is declared on the king of all kings and the lord of all lords. The creation and the world as we knew it was broken. And creation was reordered in that moment. Look at what Genesis chapter 3 says in the reordering of the universe of creation. Here's what he says. And they had heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord 
God among the trees of the garden. I'm not sure there's any sadder verse in all of the Bible than that. Here were Adam and Eve. They were living in a perfect harmony and perfect rhythm. No shame, no guilt. Naked and did not even know it. And they disobeyed God. And guilt, shame, came flooding in like a tidal wave. And not only that, but it also made them dumb because they thought that they could hide from God in the garden. (laughs) And he continues in verse 9. But the Lord God called the man and said to him, Where are you? He didn't even know. He already knew. Verse 10. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Verse 11. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? How did you know? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Verse 12, and this is gold. The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. In other words, I was minding my own business. I was doing what you told me to do. It was her fault. She's the one that gave it to me. I didn't even know where the fruit came from. And if that's not a good enough excuse, if you read it even a little bit deeper... He also says, not only is it her fault, but it's also your fault, God. After all, she was your idea. It was just me and the animals. I was good. I was content. And then you gave her to me. It was her fault, but you're the one. she was your idea, so really it's your fault, God. He continues. Or he continues. And the, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Nobody will take responsibility. The man says it's the woman. The woman says it's the serpent. Nobody will own up, will take responsibility for the decision that they made. Maybe after all these years, we haven't come that far or changed that much. I don't know about you, but I'm very, very quick to deflect blame when I do something wrong. The reordering of creation continues in verse 14. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Fifteen. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That's kind of a foreshadowing of the gospel. Seventeen. Or uh, of Jesus coming. Sixteen. Then the woman said to him, I will... Or to the woman he said... I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, obviously, I have never given birth to a child, but I have been in the room twice when it happened. And I can tell you, the the God of the universe lived up to his promise when he came to that. Now, I don't think he's just talking about birth or pain and childbirth or childbirth. I mean, I think he means pain altogether. He's saying, I'm going to multiply pain in this world. There's going to be additional pain because of the brokenness in this world. He continues. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree in which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. He says, women, ladies, 
I'm going to multiply the pain of childbirth. And men, the work that I created you to do, and we know that it's a gift from God. Work was around well before the fall. It was a gift for all of us, primarily men, but for all of us. It was a gift given to us. He says, now you're going to have to work to produce. The work is going to be work. He says, before it was easy. You just went out there and you, you worked the garden and fruit came forth and there was no weeds, there was no thistles, there were no thorns. Everything worked in harmony. That world is gone now, though. It's a broken world. It's difficult. It's painful. You're going to be at the office. And you're going to work hard all day and it's going to feel like you got nowhere. And it wasn't like that before. Creation fraction. The last thing in this text about the reordering of creation in verse 19, it says, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. He says, death from now on is going to reign over you. And you and I both know that at any moment, death could come home. And it was not that way when God created it. We have just read a complete reordering of creation. A reality that you and I now live in. And you know there's something inside of us. There's something in our heart. There's something in our soul that understands that this world is not as it was created to be. There's something in us that knows that there's brokenness. That there's injustice. That, there's, there, that, that, that wrong people benefit and, and, and good people, moral people, quote unquote, get a raw deal. There's something about this world that, that leaves us wanting. There's something in us that knows that the world is broken. And it's not just you and I. It's not just people that, that go to church. It's not just people that, that are disciples of Christ, that claim Christ, that know that they were bought by the blood of the Lamb. It's everybody in this world. Think of how, uh, how much money is raised under the, the, the banner of injustice. We all know there's something inside of our heart. There's something inside of our soul that knows that this world is broken. That it's not as it was created to be. Everybody knows that whether they know where to find the answer or not. And as a result, we look for the answer in our culture, in all different kinds of places. There's hundreds, maybe even thousands of places. We look for the answer of how to fix what is broken. We know there's brokenness. How do you fix it? We look for that answer in all kinds of different places. And I just want to name three of them. Number one is this. We look for it inside of ourselves. That is why Zen, Feng Shui, and yoga, and if you do yoga, I'm not, looking, I'm not trying to pick a fight with you this morning. We can have that discussion on a personal level. But the origins of that are all in looking to find peace, tranquility, inside of ourselves. I'm just going to get to a quiet place. I'm going to look inside myself. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to go to a, a happy place. 
And I'm going to try and fix the result. The, the, the desire is to fix what I know inherently in my soul is broken. So many thousands and millions of dollars are raised on trying to fix what is broken by looking inside yourself. There's religions around the world, Eastern religions, that do just that. Look inside of yourself to try and fix what's broken. Another thing, another way we try to fix what's broken is with government. And I don't care what party you're affiliated with. Thousands, millions of Americans go to the polls every two, four years, hoping that the person that you're going to vote for can fix what every other person was unable to do, was unable to fix. We think if this person, because they had a great campaign, and I'm not talking about one particular party, please do not peg me. It, both parties are guilty. All, however many parties you want to say, you want to include in that, are guilty. You believe, not you and us, but our culture believes that these people that we elect can fix what we know is inherently broken. And year after year, election cycle after election cycle, we are let down because they cannot fix it. Third thing that I can think of is religion. A moral code. A list of do's and a list of don'ts. And in the name of religion, even in the name of God, in the name of a moral code, thousands, even millions of people have been slaughtered in an effort to fix what we know is inherently broken. And so we go around our, our culture and people in this world go around looking to find ways to fix what's broken. And I'm here to tell you this morning, there is nothing this world has to offer that can fix it. If you continue to look, if we continue to look for ways to fix what is broken in this world, we will continue to be let down time after time. So you may be asking, Jonathan, you're telling me that there's, no, that, that there's nothing this world has to offer that can fix what we know is broken. And I would say yes. You're saying we are up a creek. Unable to fix what has been broken. We are in trouble. We have been given and we know inherently this is bad news. This morning I would say yes, that's exactly right. This world is broken. There's nothing you can do about it. And I can do about it. Now, obviously, there's good news. And that's exactly what we're going to talk about next week. I told you it was bad news Sunday. Let's pray. Father, we live in a broken world. And we are powerless to fix it. We turn to so many things. We look inside of ourselves. We turn to officials, to government. We even turn to a list of do's and don'ts, a moral code, to try and fix what we know is broken, injustice that we see in the world.
and none of it fixes it. This is bad news. But I thank you that the Bible doesn't end at Genesis chapter 3. Because from here on out, you begin a pursuit to fix what was broken, to recover redemption. And so I pray that as we look at the good news, it would be all the more glorious because we've seen the bad news today. We are in a broken world and powerless to fix it. We're sunk in and of ourselves. That's bad news. But we know the gospel is good news. So we look forward to seeing it, to learning about it, to believing it, to trusting in it, and to claiming it over the next few weeks as we look at your word. Jesus name we pray. Excited about this journey to Rome. Powerful words, God. Share the word. Let's love the word. Just so clear and strong. We got to this. Let's stand together and have a response to this message. Living in a broken world, there's one solution.